Hey there. Welcome to Just To Be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter from multiple decades who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Sioux City Journal, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee. This week saw the release of a handful of very interesting films, including Tick, Tick, Boom, the new Jonathan Larson biopic starring Andrew Garfield, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is in theaters for a week before coming to Netflix late next week. We've also got Red Notice, a big-budget action heist-type thing starring The Rock, Ryan Reynolds, and Gal Gadot, which premiered on Netflix today. And we've got Home Sweet Home Alone, which does exactly what it says on the tin and can be found on Disney+. Plus. For our staff picks, we decided to highlight movies that were set in newsrooms about print media. Now, why did we do that? Well, there is a new documentary premiering on PBS this coming Monday called Storm Lake that is all about the Storm Lake Times, a family-run weekly newspaper in small-town Iowa. And we're pretty excited to share an interview that Bruce did recently with Storm Lake Times editor Art Cullen, who received a Pulitzer Prize in 2017 for a series on dark money in corporate agriculture. You can find information about where you can watch the Storm Lake documentary on Monday, along with links to our social media, etc., to see what we're up to and or contact us if you want to sound off in our DMs. If you like the show, please tell your movie-loving pals and let us know what you think in the review section of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. I am joined here by Bruce Miller, editor at the Sioux City Journal, and Jared McNett, a reporter at the Sioux City Journal. Are you a, um, do you have a specific beat, Jared? Reporter and online uh, editor, I think is the, uh, the other title, right, Bruce? That is correct. Wasn't that like I was at the Watergate hearings? You are correct. <laughs> <laughs> that is accurate. Bruce uh, clearly has a, a new microphone. And I will be talking into it frequently. <laughs> that is correct. I'm still just talking through my Bluetooth headphones. <laughs> we are not crying a river for you. You've been on vacation and it's warm. Yeah. Came back just in time for some snow, though. Yeah, he brought it. Is it snowing where you guys are at? We got some, yes. some flurries this morning. It looks yep. like yes. in Madison. I actually won a contest for picking when the first day of snow was. So this year or in the past? This year. This year. I think there's a prize coming my way, but I don't know if I want it. This is the most self-satisfied I've ever seen you look, Bruce. <laughs> How often do I get a win? I don't get a win all the time. <laughs> It's a very pyrrhic victory because, like, you might be getting some kind of prize, but it comes at the expense of there's snow on the grass now. Yeah, right. And true. then I slip and slide all over the streets, and I can't get home, and I'm dicing with death, thinking that this is the worst ever. But I, I might be having a shovel in my future. You just wait. There you go. Well, snow on the ground definitely does mean people are going to be spending more time inside, which means more time at home watching movies expert pivot i saw that home alone thing speak on it because i know jared is is a huge home alone fan as am i i mean i'll i guess give a little bit of an intro it's on disney plus and it is directed by dan mazar who previously did dirty grandpa and he's also worked with sasha baron cohen on a few showtime projects so the idea of him doing a, a Home Alone movie on Disney Plus seems interesting. Mikey Day, Ellie Kemper, Rob Delaney. I mean, it seems like it's got, you know, Pete Holmes, Keenan Thompson, Chris Parnell. It looks like it's got a really great cast. But uh, that that premiered, I believe, today. So we are officially in in Christmas, Christmas movie mode with a, a new Home Alone movie. Uh, Jer or, uh, Bruce, what did you think? Well, first of all, we've been in Christmas movie mode for the last six months because you see them on Hallmark all the time. So different strokes for different folks, I guess. Right. But this uh, it's it's cute. It really has no bearing on the original films. 
it's um, a couple, uh, Rob Delaney and Ellie Kemper, really don't have that much money. And they want to move. They want to do a lot of different things. And this little boy steals a doll from their house that's worth $200,000. Well, they need to get the doll back because they want the $200,000. But the little kid is alone at the home. So he has to uh, kind of protect himself. And he doesn't want these people coming to steal the the doll. The little kid was in, um, I believe, Jojo Rabbit. Yes, he was the, uh, the chubby kid, right? Yeah, yep. And his parents are gone. And of course, the mother is worried, just like Catherine O'Hara was. Um, and she's trying to get back to him. But he also booby traps everything so that these two are slipping and sliding on ice and falling down and, you know, slapstick. And then they, they come to the conclusion that really it was just a misunderstanding and we're all friends. Is that, I mean, <laughs> let's not give away the ending there, Bruce. <laughs> no, but it, it, well, there, you can see there's a sequel built in. I, I can kind of guess there's going to be a nice, happy resolution to one of these movies. Has I don't know be. how much of a spoiler that is. <laughs> well, no, in the, in, in the original movies, you know, the, 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 the wet bandits uh, come sticky bandits. They go to jail at the end of every single one of those. So in those movies, there's there's a really weird darkness to them. I know that we've talked about in the past, but Freeman hasn't listened. I mean, it's you know you've got the the threat of uh, if you throw one more paint can, kid, I'm gonna snap off your cojones and boil them in motor oil. Not to mention, like yeah, in the first one, like Joe Pesci is about to gnaw his fingers off, and then. And the second one, they pull a gun on the kid. <laughs> like they pull a gun, they pull a gun on a child in Central Park. <laughs> yeah. The one, like the moment that sticks out the most in my mind from the first movie, after Kevin takes the zip line at the treehouse, Harry and Marv stick their heads out and, and it's like, where'd he go? I don't know. Maybe he committed suicide. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> well, this one is, this is kinder. Okay, yeah. yeah, this isn't going to be introducing the the, the concept of self-immolation to uh, self-negation to elementary school-age children. Time. Yeah, yeah, it's, but it's, you know what, you throw it on, the kids are at home, you watch it, no harm, no foul. The one thing I can't remember, because I refuse to keep up with the lore of these movies after the third one, to me, that's the last one that, like, at all mattered. I think this is, like, what, the sixth one now? For the fifth one, like how many have there, there was one with French Stewart at one point. I know that. But other than that, it's just a, a black hole for me with the other Home Alone movies. Go back to the classic. Just watch the first one. You're good. Watch the first two and you're good. But two, but you know that they're stretching with that one as well. It was very cute. He was a cute kid. I remember him really well. And, and I think it would have been a better sequel or a reboot or whatever. Macaulay Culkin should be the adult in Home Alone. Does he have any interest in coming back? It seems he's doing stuff. He's working, and I would wouldn't doubt that somebody that made him that much money wouldn't be a revisit. Well, I know he did it like a like a funnier die video a few years ago of you know Kevin McAllister older, but yeah, I, I certainly wonder if he would h- how interested he is in coming back to that. Obviously, yeah, it's, it's made him a ton of money, but. He's got to make a return at some point. He can't let Rory all of a sudden become the biggest uh, Tolkien uh, in the family. Macaulay's got to reclaim that crown as the uh, preeminent Tolkien kid. You're thinking of Kieran, Kieran Culkin. Or whatever, yeah, Kieran. There's too many Culkins. (laughs) There's too many of them. Bruce, I know that you... I saw Tick, Tick, Boom, and Tick, Tick, Boom opens today in theaters around the country, and it'll be on Netflix next Friday. Directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's his first big thing. And it's actually a Jonathan Larson off-Broadway show that he's adapted to become the Jonathan Larson story. And Jonathan Larson is the guy who created Rent. Basically laid down the format and revolutionized the modern musical. It brought in a younger audience, which wasn't coming to the theater. Very fascinating because it shows how you can really lose in that kind of world. He's not, he's not writing rent and suddenly there's a big premiere and he's wonderful and everything is great. It's like everything is falling apart on him and he thinks there's no future for him and he may have to get out of, out of writing shows. 
it's stuffed with Broadway people. If you know anything about Broadway, if you're a fan of Broadway, you want to go. There's a diner scene where it's like a who's who of Broadway just sitting in this diner. And they don't, you know, they don't have lines or anything. They're just there. Andrew Garfield plays the Jonathan Larson character, and he's extremely good. He sings, he dances, he does everything. And um, the, the it's three friends, basically, is what it focuses on. His girlfriend, who has an opportunity for another job somewhere else, and then a friend who's an actor but realizes he's mediocre and he can't get work. And he decides he's going to leave uh, show business and go into advertising how their lives differ, how they intersect, and what this all means in the end for all of them. And then uh, Miranda does take it up to the, the time of rent and shows that, you know, even though he never saw that success, it came to him, even though he was struggling all during the writing of this. And they have interesting little kind of sidelight to this is that Stephen Sondheim is a character. And Stephen Sondheim actually did... Um, advise Jonathan Larson and would write him letters and encourage him. And uh, Sondheim is played by Bradley uh, Whitford. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And then at one point they use his voice on a voice message thing, an answering machine, and it's the real Stephen Sondheim. So that's kind of fun too. If you're, like I say, if you're a musical theater nerd, you got to see this thing. It's great. How friendly is it to people who aren't musical theater nerds? Because I know there's a lot of those. Because they don't just break into song at any given minute, there is a story there. It's about, you know, so often we see these, these show business struggle stories where, of course, it's going to end in something positive. And this doesn't. He does this big kind of preview for this show that he's writing, and nobody wants it. You know, and so what does he do? keep on working at a diner trying to make some money to be able to do more of these or does he just bail and say you know I've had it so it's it's good from that perspective but I really think you got to have some kind of theater history or theater interest to really deep dive in it would you say that it's something that people should go and see in the theater if they can or I didn't think that that added anything more to my experience. I really didn't. I think I could have watched it on TV and it would have been fine because there are production numbers. There's one point where the, the front of the diner comes down and they start dancing on the thing and it's cute, but you don't need to have a big screen to do that. I can see that at home and be just as odd. Yeah, but I enjoyed it. I really did. I do think it has a sense of it could get nominated for some things. Andrew Garfield could be a Best Actor nominee, could, and that's the key word. And I think it will set up Lin-Manuel as a, a director. I really will. I could see him doing more things because it opens it up more than what this, this show was no good. The show Tick, Tick, Boom, as an off-Broadway show, was unformed. And the guy who wrote uh, Dear Evan Hansen took the information, reshaped it, and added this kind of extra layer that we're seeing Jonathan Larson, we're not seeing a character that Jonathan Larson has written as that character. So there's a lot more to it than if you ever saw Tick, Tick, Boom. It's a different show. Where do you see this fitting within like the larger like Netflix infrastructure? The idea of Netflix being the one who bought this, I can't remember if they bought it uh, after the fact or if it was something that they were producing from the very beginning. They've been doing musicals, and I think that they see that as an audience for them. You know how if you liked whatever, you'll probably like this. And they had the prom last year. Um, they've been doing some of those kind of staged like Hamilton was, but that was on Disney Plus. But they're doing more things like that. So I would assume that that's part of that world. And they probably have a cap on how much they give them to make this thing. But what doesn't look expensive at all. Um, so I think, I think it'll do well for them. It'll do well for Lynn, who's got another movie coming out, which is a, uh, an animated film from Disney, which could get him that elusive Oscar that he's been trying to get. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this, where this falls. Um, it, I think it's better than In the Heights, which he wrote and appears in. And I liked In the Heights, but I think this has a deeper story. You think of fame, if you liked fame, 
if you liked some of those other kind of making of shows, you could like this. And that's in theaters this weekend. And then next Friday, it'll be on Netflix. Now, speaking of Netflix, the latest big budget action thing that they have invested in is called Red Notice. And that came out today. And that's one that I think they bought from Paramount. Paramount had been producing that. Uh, it's directed by Rawson Marshall Thurber, fantastic name, who directed We're the Millers and Dodgeball and Central Intelligence and Size and uh, Central Intelligence and Skyscraper. Central Intelligence and Skyscraper being the most immediate comparisons to Red Notice, uh, because Red Notice stars Dwayne Johnson, who's in both of those, and uh, also Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot, and. It is, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's Dwayne Johnson, it's Ryan Reynolds and it's Gal Gadot in a globe trotting, twisty, turny plot twist, you know, MacGuffin laden art heist mystery action thriller type thing. It's got, you know, so many hyphenates go into the descriptors. It's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't really, it never becomes more than just the sum of its parts, but when those parts are Dwayne Johnson, Ryan Reynolds, Gal Gadot, and uh, a whole bunch of really cool set pieces uh, and overall kind of goofy aesthetic, it's it's fine. I mean, I don't know. I'm you know I'm not going to knock it of the of the big you know what twenty thirty however many million dollar action movies that Netflix has done. This was the the most enjoyable. I'm thinking of uh, Six Underground and um, what was the other Michael Bay type thing that they did? Um, it's, I mean, it's kind of a Netflix action thing too. Didn't they do Spencer Confidential? Wasn't that also Netflix? Yeah. And that's, I, I would still put Red Notice above that. Was it funny? Yeah. In its way. Boy, these are some, these are some real praises of this movie. It, it was fine and it's funny in its way. All of the the really, you know, fun little things generally come from Ryan Reynolds and Dwayne Johnson interacting. And I mean, they're just, they radiate charm. I mean, I, it's, there's no other way to really talk about it. Now, obviously, Ryan Reynolds has a certain group of people that probably don't like him. Same thing with Dwayne Johnson, maybe. But, you know, it's, a, it's an amusement park ride. It's supposed to be that. The, all of the, the computer graphics and stuff are really crappy but consistently so, I guess, which is maybe why it's okay. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a, so many of the sequences you're like, that's, that's a green screen. That's a green screen. That's a green screen. That's a green screen. They filmed this on a set. My understanding is that Netflix has been trying to get some kind of a, a big franchise that they can then continue rolling things out. And this is another instance of them attempting to partner with studios and whatever to make this happen and then it's not so it doesn't seem like that's necessarily where this is going to go but i know bright is one of the worst reviewed films that netflix ever made and we're already getting a sequel to that sometime next year i think so the will smith ogre police movie bright how dare you how dare you it's an orc it's not an ogre apologies to the uh, to the jrr tolkien state yeah you should apologize to ogres as well uh they don't appreciate being confused with orcs the only dwayne johnson thing i've been interested in this week is vin diesel just absolutely calling him out uh about being in another fast and furious movie and like tell, basically implying that like he clearly he doesn't want it bad enough if he's not going to be in another fast and furious movie i really appreciate vin diesel just trying to like out macho the rock it's pretty great that's my uh, most interesting Dwayne Johnson thing for this week, I think. It's like when you see like like a little dog barking at a bigger dog because the little dog doesn't know that it's not a big dog. Like, <laughs> yep. All due respect to Vin Diesel, but between Vin Diesel and The Rock, I think I'm going to give give this one to The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Forever and ever. So you want other new ones? Do you have any other new ones that you want to talk oh, about? Oh, I've I've been... I'm stacking them up like wood at home. That's how many new ones I've seen. Bruised with Halle Berry that she directed. Mm -hmm. And you're interviewing her today, right? I think today. I think today. Um, and when does that come out? That's not until, if not later this month, it's early next month. Gotcha. 
Um, and then I saw Old Henry, which I've, I've been raving about that I like with Tim Blake Nelson. You also had an interview with Tim Blake Nelson, which we will append to a, a later episode. Do, please do, because it's, yeah. When it, whenever that movie comes out, why? Because I think it's, it's in limited release in like various art houses right now. It's one that will get attention. I know it will, because he's so good. And he plays this kind of grizzled farmer who happens upon a guy who has been injured and he says he needs help, but he can't be sure if the guy is a good guy or a bad guy. And then three bad guys or good guys, you don't know what they are, come in saying they're looking for this guy. So who does he trust? Who does he believe? And um, yeah, it's fascinating. He's got a son that wants to just kind of shoot from the hip and do whatever. And he, he holds him back a bit, but very, very good. For I don't like Westerns normally because I think they're boring. And I was mesmerized by this. It, it held my interest. So it was good. Won you over. Yeah. And Tim Blake Nelson, he's one of those choice actors. You know, we've kind of lost a layer of those character actors that were good in just about anything. You'll get Ned Beatty, for example, or Gene Hackman would do a lot of those kinds of things. And they're not working. They're not around. They're not filling in those gaps where you need kind of some grizzled old guy who comes in with the, the salient kind of moment. He very much is like Robert Duvall in um, like Tender Mercies, for example, or um, Lonesome Dove. That's very much the kind of lane that I think Tim Blake Nelson is now in. And that's good. It's a good thing. One of the only things I actually uh, had time to watch this week since I was on vacation and then in transit and everything was um, I rewatched what's one of my favorite movies from the 2010s, and that's um, Colossal, which is really a Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis movie and is fantastic. But like Tim Blake Nelson is one of the supporting characters in it, and he doesn't have a lot to do, but like the stuff he gets to do in Colossal, he's like absolutely terrific. And I'm always happy to, to see him and stuff, even if it's in those just smaller, very unshowy uh, kind of parts. I could see him in another Fargo series. Perfect. One other thing, just to circle back to, to last week, because I don't think you had seen it last week, Bruce. Since then, you've seen The French Dispatch, right? Loved it. Loved it. And, you know, it's one of those movies that it is not for everybody. Definitely not for everybody. But I love the whole concept of this publication. And they have very cool little lines in there for, for uh, journalists that you just would catch and you go, oh, my God, yes, 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 you've done it. You are, you know what you're talking about. And the people that are in this thing, sitting in the back in like, you know, little chairs are big name people. If you want to do a star spotting thing, go to that because you'll see, oh my God, there's so-and-so. You have to wait till the credits to really figure out if it was that person or not, but I enjoyed it. And I think Timothy Chalamet constantly amazes me with how good he is. Because I think he's just going to be another one of those kids. What's his name? Who's Lucas Hedges, who was kind of the flavor of the month for a year, two years, maybe three years. And he played basically the same character. He was always the kid who was somehow, there's something wrong with him, or there was something the parents didn't like about him, or he was kind of combative with adults. He played the same role in everything, and he's been acclaimed for everything he's done. But Timothy Chalamet has taken a leap and done a lot of really offbeat things. And this is among them. And he plays with Francis McDormand, just like their, their old time pals. I think it's, it's a real sign that he's going to be around and he's going to be a good, good actor someday. At this point, I've come to like a begrudging respect for him as an actor, but I still think if I ever actually had to meet and hang out with him that I would like grow tired of him within five minutes. <laughs> he probably wouldn't be a friend, but you would respect no. the work he did. Cause I think, you know, he has ideas if he's, if they're coming from himself that are very clever and show that he has thought about it and not just kind of turned up and read the lines. Bill Murray kind of walks through it. You know, he's not in it that much and Owen Wilson. Okay. I get you. But some of the stuff is just a riot. And it's not for everybody, right? It is probably the most accessible uh, Wes Anderson movie for newbies, maybe. It's a really nice entry point, I think, in that it 
you've got like three bite-sized chunks and then like a tiny little crumb at the beginning. And I mean, you certainly get a pretty full range of all of the visual ticks and quirks that Wes Anderson has <laughs> and his ability with actors and all of the set design and everything. The set design is unimpeachable. It is the best. And if that, it should, I just bar none. I don't care how much sand you had to get for Dune. I don't want Dune to win best sets. I would really love to see this one win French Dispatch. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, that's, that has stuck with me and the thing that I want to keep going back to is there are so many really head spinningly inventive visual things that he does in that movie. Even just the, you know, the camera on a dolly instead of having like a freeze frame, you know, it's everyone is holding a pose and the camera just kind of like, you know, scoots past him. Uh, I mean, it's these sets end up feeling like dollhouses that, you know, he is adjusted just so. I use that exact word in my review. Hey, <laughs> fantastic. Well, speaking of things that, that Bruce has, has written, we're going to have audio from an interview that he did with, Art Cullen. Art Cullen is the editor of the Stormlake Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. And what's fascinating about this is it's a small newspaper. It's twice a week in Iowa. And they were people, uh, documentary filmmakers were so interested in that kind of world that a small paper from Iowa would be able to win that they called him up and said, we'd like to do, you know, uh, something on you, a documentary on you. I, they didn't know what it was. They dug in and just spent time with him, oddly enough, during the Iowa caucuses and then also during the start of the pandemic. And they were able to show what it's like to be in the newspaper business at this time. You know, uh, we've been bombarded with people who talk about fake news. But when you actually see these people out there gathering the news, talking about the news, dealing with the news, wrestling over what they're going to play and how they play it, you can't really level that claim against newspaper people and they're struggling they're very much struggling to just stay afloat and what it takes and what has happened why did that happen and uh, it's a fascinating film that's been shown all over the country in you know little one-offs and film festivals it's gotten several film festival awards and now this next week it'll be on independent lens um, so everybody can see it Yep, that'll be on Monday on PBS. Right. And it's still in the running for potential Oscar consideration. In honor of, of that and the, the interview that, that Bruce did with Art Cullen, which will append to this episode, so please stick around for that. It's a great interview. I mean, hearing two guys with uh, you know so much history in newspapers just go back and forth about the, the state of the industry as well as the, you know, the art of being uh, a subject of... <laughs> of reporting versus actually doing the reporting. It's it's really, really good. But in honor of that, uh, we wanted to do a little staff picks section about our favorite movies about newspapers or movies that take place in newsrooms that have to do with kind of the nuts and bolts of putting together a paper. Either you guys wanted to jump in. Jared, you got a pick? One of my favorites from the 2000s and it's probably my favorite uh, David Fincher movie and that is Zodiac. I think the aspect uh, of journalism that I was thinking about with Zodiac and picking that one is just the way that uh, sometimes journalists and reporters can get too invested in something for their own like downfall a little bit and like just absolutely burn themselves out or in the case of the movie like drive themselves insane basically and I really appreciate the way that like Fincher in that movie shows that like yeah you get too invested in some of this stuff it's not going to reap anything positive for you. <laughs> Bruce how about you you've got the longest. I remember tenure. back in the day when we were watching the movies on the cinema screen and the cinema screen would light up and we'd say, there is a movie. That is a good one. Um, well, I'm just imagining, I mean, you were probably back in newsrooms when, you know, you had some guy whose job was just to empty the uh, the ashtrays, you know? like <laughs> You got an ashtray, you got a telephone, and you got a telephone book. Don't waste it. You may have to share a typewriter. And we would have reams of this copy paper that you would type on. And then you would uh, write over it. Somebody else would set the type. Yeah, it was it was a different world. Um, Bruce, did you ever have a hat 
that had a piece of paper in it that said press. Did not, did not. I've, I've had that when people have wanted to identify me as press, where you're like in something. But um, no, never had that. And, you know, the, the concept of a press pass, too, people don't ask for that. You never show me your press pass. Well, sorry, if you don't, you know, here we are. It's interesting because one of the movies that I was really enamored with when I was starting out was All the President's Men. And you watch that film now and it's so slow and so boring. You think, why would you ever go into this business? And that's just because our attention span has gotten so short. But it does set out very nicely how they kind of uh, craft a, an investigation like that. Um, I think more recently, The Post is a better, a better look at that kind of stuff where you see the, the, the legwork. Spotlight is another one. Spotlight, though, everything fell in place. You know, oh, I think I have some books in the basement. We should look in those books. Okay, yes, there's all the answers. It's not like that. Um, but when you look at films, classic films that are kind of fun about the business, His Girl Friday is a real fun, fun um, look at the business because it is odd. It's filled with a lot of quirky characters. There's a pace that you don't see in other businesses. And that one kind of captures the, the kind of chaos that we live in at all times. But I like His Girl Friday. And if I were to pick a, a current one, it would be The Post. Yeah, because that's taking another look at that whole Watergate era from a different perspective. And Meryl Streep is wonderful as um, Catherine Graham. And I think that's a good sense of how that game is played on a different level from a publisher standpoint. It isn't just reporters kind of hitting the streets and asking questions. There's a, a whole other level of gamesmanship that has to be played. And she was, you know, rightly so, she was a, a trailblazer by saying, no, we're going ahead with this. We're gonna do this, even though it may cost me my friends. And I thought that was a fascinating look at that kind of world. What's your, your favorite movie? My pick is one, it's, it's very little seen, but I watched it on the Criterion channel uh, a little while back, and it is called Between the Lines from 1977. It is directed by Joan Micklin Silver, and it is about a, a Boston kind of alt-weekly underground newspaper called the Back Bay Mainline. It's a, a newspaper that is kind of risen in prominence in the, the countercultural 60s. So it's full of a bunch of, you know, various degrees of anarchic personalities. But in the 70s, it's them kind of dealing with the possibility of being bought by a different company. And it's just it's, it's a really fantastic collection of up and coming actors. John Hurd is the lead. Another uh, Home Alone connection. Uh, it's got Jeff Goldblum in one of his early uh, roles, uh, Bruno Kirby, very young Bruno Kirby's in there. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a really great movie. It shows a, a nice ensemble. It shows, I mean, just all, all of the, you know, when you were speaking about, you know, being an editor, part of it is also, you know, wrangling the diverse personalities that are in a newsroom at any given time. And certainly anybody who's going into print journalism, uh, there's, you know, a lot of interesting <laughs> personality quirks among that that set of people uh, that I can certainly from experience and also probably represent myself having you know spent time turning and copy but yeah between the lines fantastic well yeah well next up we will have the interview with Art Cullen so stick around for that watch that documentary on Monday on, on your local PBS station look up the times I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to where people can get all that information uh before we jump there i don't know jared you want to you want to send everybody out on on a nice note or absolutely uh this doesn't uh, require me to do any uh fact checking i don't have to call any sources for this to say uh go to your local cineplex and uh and see something good see something good fantastic all right uh now we're going to throw to the interview that Bruce did recently with Storm Lake Times editor Art Cullen. Take it away, Bruce. We are 
with Art Cullen, who is the man who is barnstorming across Iowa, the rest of the country, to talk about the movie Storm Lake. What has that been like? You've been like a, a rock star. What has that been like for you? Oh, well, uh, it's been tiring, Bruce. <laughs> uh, I just got back from uh, Greenfield, Iowa last night from a screening uh, at the Warren Cultural Center, really cool place right on the town square in lovely Greenfield, Iowa. And uh, of course, got home at midnight. So I'm getting too old for this stuff, Bruce. I couldn't hang with the stones, man. <laughs> Have you thought, I can't answer these questions anymore? Have you been worn out? And what is it like from a different perspective? Well, it's been really a lot of fun to, uh, you know, to talk about journalism because one of the things we find and one of the things that the producer of the film Beth Levison found was that newspapers uh, do a terrible job of telling their own story and we find a lot of people who are surprised uh, that newspapers are in rough straits right now uh, they didn't realize it until they saw the movie and that's because we do such a lousy job of explaining our situation to readers and, you know, as somewhat of an institution, we probably have an obligation to explain ourselves better. It's, it's uh, one of those humility things, though. You don't like to brag yeah. about yourself. Or wine. Or wine, right. We, we really kind of live in a vacuum, I think, where we'll, if, unless you've been in that same trench, you don't understand yeah. what it's like. Right. And, uh, and this movie does a, a fantastic job of portraying what it is like, and whether it's you, you can scale it from the Storm Lake Times to the Sioux City Journal. And, you know, the journal's taken its share of punches uh, over the last 10 years, certainly. And, uh, and so is the Storm Lake Times and every other newspaper. Do you see that there is a shift? Do you think that we will turn around the, the ship at some point? Well, uh, yes, I do. But we've been stumbling, you know. I understand how your Goss press operates, flinging ink and, uh, and uh, grinding grease. I understand that. I do not understand TikTok. <laughs> and, uh, and so we haven't done a great job of making that transition uh, as an industry. And uh, uh, we're just starting now. So we've got, you know, we're, we're marketing ourselves more aggressive online for the, you know, Bruce Miller is now doing a podcast. Right. It's, but, isn't it weird how all the things that we didn't want to do when we started out are now part of what we do? We didn't want to go into yeah. radio. We didn't want to go into television. And now <laughs> we're doing those kinds of things because it's part of what we do to help sell the print product, which is what we believe in. Right. Or even the uh, e-product, not necessarily even the print product. So it's a conundrum. But we're we're dragged we're we're being dragged into it, and uh, so the journal's been a lot more aggressive about trying to develop a digital marketplace and digital voice, and we're a little late to the game. But it requires cash because Town News, operated by Lee Enterprises, owner of the Sioux City Journal, just doesn't give it away right. uh, when they when they run our you know your website. Yeah, it's, it's, it's stuff that we're not prepared for. I guess they need to teach a better class in this in school so people understand what it is we're trying to do. We're so used to just getting a story. Yeah. But now there's marketing that story somehow so it reaches the widest audience and gets the hits. And getting people to pay for that story. And that was one of the things I think we went wrong with in the beginning. Yeah, we thought if we just put it out there, it was okay. And you were information wants to be free, but you, Bruce Miller wants to eat. I want to eat. You, but you didn't. You didn't do that right away. You weren't a first adapter on any of that stuff. You didn't jump on the online bandwagon right away. No, we didn't. And we really tried to stick to our print product. But you know, the more I was getting around, the more I was seeing, and you know, you look at your own circulation numbers, and then you, you go to a hotel or an airport and realize, I haven't seen a person under the age of 80 holding a newspaper in their hands. And uh, so we better get with the program. And, uh, and we're still not there yet, again, because it requires money. And because uh, older print guys like you and me are still uh, designing the product, essentially. Do you think that it will be the day that we don't see print? 
Do you think that's in our future? Probably. You know, the, uh, Tampa, Florida has a twice a week print product now. And what the uh, Detroit Free Press, is that three times a week, I think, print? And so I think that's, you know, maybe there's a Sunday paper. Maybe eventually the, there's the Sioux City Sunday Journal. I think people like the idea of sitting with a paper on a Sunday. It's yeah. like you, you've gotten kind of, it's, it's a reward. I'm going to sit with a book on Sunday. And right. they like that concept. So I think that day would be the last day we would see disappear. And I don't think many readers, frankly, would miss the Monday edition of most uh, daily newspapers, the Monday print edition. And you know what's uh, interesting with us? We, do, we don't have a Monday print edition, but we have very high numbers online. Right. So it says they're still interested in the news, but maybe yeah, so they, they can get the markets, you know, on Monday that they uh, which are not in the journal <laughs> that right. morning. Uh, but they can go to uh, to uh, the journal online and get to those markets uh, on Monday. You know, so anyway, I, I question whether print newspapers, uh, for, you know, we, we've built our, ourselves on immediacy. The Sioux City Journal used to have, you know, my dad subscribed to it back in the day so he could get the West Coast baseball scores because it had a later press time than the Des Moines Register did. And uh, you were fulfilling a, a need for immediacy. And at one time, you know, the journal had a bulldog edition. And again, immediacy. Well, those are anachronistic now. And so we got to evolve to a different medium that's more efficient. And there's no question that the cell phone is more efficient at conveying information than that gloss printing press is. When, and cheap. Um, yeah. When you're talking with, and I'm sure you've talked to college students now in the course of all this, this barnstorming, what do they say about news? What are they telling you? Because I, when I ask people, where do you get your news? They'll say Twitter. And you go, that's not news. You're not getting anything from that. That's not a news source. It's basically an advertisement. Right. Or Facebook, which is, I think, even worse. Facebook uh, is bragging. Yeah. And it's dangerous to uh, our democracy and our public health, <laughs> you know, from the, uh, the, the propaganda and lies on there that, uh, that are holding us back from getting vaccinations and, and so on. So what do the people that young kids say about their news sources? Do they say that they, they want something or are they? Well, happy they with say they, they want something, but as we've known uh, for a long time, young people aren't necessarily engaged civically and they haven't been uh, for as long as I've been in this business. And uh, when I talk to young college journalists, uh, they're very excited about the future uh, of, you know, uh, digital whatever from uh TikTok to instagram to, to uh, video to podcast to 5g three-dimensional whatever so but young people generally you know we aren't necessarily purveying what they're consuming and uh our stories about property taxes aren't necessarily what they're consuming what what gets them into journalism why do they want to go into the business well, I think that younger people right now have a real sense of community. Uh, I really do. Uh, more so than we did. Uh, my, our, my generation, I'm 64 uh, and I'm a baby boomer. And I think we have more, you know, and we baby boomers had no attachment to place, nor did we see much of, uh, of our role in that place. And that, that, that's a whole nother discussion. But, yeah, you know, it's funny how we always felt we wouldn't, try to usurp the older generation. We wouldn't try to butt up against them and say anything. It'll, we will have our time. Well, right. we, this is our time and we're not taking advantage of it. We we're it. the younger <laughs> ones to do it, right? California's on fire. Right. Um, Get the kids. They'll do it. They'll take care of this. Right. Right. Uh, and, and so anyway, uh, for example, my son, Tom, is working with a Buena Vista student now, Matt, Matthew Merrill Keene, whose parents are from El Salvador. He's a senior at Buena Vista and very adept at all forms of media and very bright and wants to stay in Storm Lake, I think. And so I think that that future is bright as long as we, 
can forward this transition and maintain our voice as a leader in the community in, in providing that essential public forum. I don't know how we do that. I don't know how we take that public forum back from Facebook and Twitter. Uh, that's a real challenge. Has, it, has this movie being out there changed things for your paper? Definitely. And for the good, I hope. Yes, uh, we formed something called the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation to support independent family-owned newspapers in rural areas in Iowa. I was on a swing from uh, Detroit to Chicago to the Twin Cities uh, at screenings, and I got to my hotel room at midnight in Detroit and got an email that this uh, billionaire from California, a Chinese immigrant, uh, had heard me on an interview on Fresh Air on NPR. And in this email, they said they wanted to lay enough money on us to get us through the pandemic. Wow. <laughs> wow. There is a God, Bruce. There is. And, yes, I uh, love that. He in the form of a Chinese uh, tech entrepreneur. Who and, knew? Yeah. And he has no agenda. He just was one of those people who came to the U.S. at 17 and couldn't speak English and created an entire future for himself and said, I want to, you know, pay back. And <laughs> it was you just more of those. Yeah, yeah. And so it has had a real, uh, a real impact on us. Because of that, we had a terrible first half of the year, as I think most newspapers did, still climbing out of this pandemic. Things have gotten better this summer. But, you know, this is really going to help us clear out uh, those cobwebs from the first half of the year. And it gives us a whole new perspective on things. Certainly, it gives me a new perspective. Have subscriptions gone up? Are you seeing more people subscribing? Is there, are they all out of state? Is that the uh, new? Um... Well, we're getting a lot of uh, out of state subscriptions, uh, digital subscriptions. And uh, so now we have what I think about 500 digital subscriptions or so on a base of 2,700. That's pretty significant. And it's something to pay attention to. And, and I, something that obviously then we can grow, I think. Again, it's going to be convincing people in Buena Vista and Sac counties that it's worth it to sure, them. Sure, This will be airing on, on PBS, right, in November? Uh, on November 15th uh, on PBS on a program called Independent Lens. And uh, it's, it's a documentary program. What are your expectations from that? Because that's much broader. It's yeah, uh, this is we're we're bad. We're nationwide. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, we've just received tremendous response, uh, both from from donors and subscribers and uh, new friends. That uh, who knows what this broadcast could generate? But the real hope is that it you know engenders a discussion nationally about the future of community journalism and not just the bigger daily newspapers which have their own, own unique problems you know the philadelphia Enquirer or the boston globe but local community weeklies like ours that a lot of people laugh at or overlook you know are actually just as vital to our democracy and they're the ones that are disappearing now at the fastest rate you know, six weekly newspapers disappeared in Iowa in the past, since the pandemic, oh, uh, wow. including, including one of Iowa's oldest, the Centerville Daily Iowegian, uh, which, what a great name, right. lost, lost yeah. to us. Yeah, that, it's, that's not a good thing. I don't think at all. Nobody cares more about the people in your community than your paper. Right. I, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but when <laughs> I see this, I think who else is going to talk about the events at your kids' schools? Who's going to shore up your, your high school football, baseball, basketball just look, was, just look at what people were saying in the past few days about Terry Herson, the former Sioux City Journal sports right. editor uh, who passed away. And everybody from the Briarcliff baseball coach to, uh, you know, uh, kids in the stands were talking about what a great guy Terry Herson was, who, of course, died on his way to a Bears game. Isn't that like the the ultimate? I mean, we should yeah. be so lucky, right? It's not going right. to happen to us. And he didn't have to watch him lose. No, right. But <laughs> it's it's really strange how 
we we are writing the history of our, our communities that probably wouldn't get written if yeah. there weren't a paper there. Yeah, and they're not getting written in Youngstown, Ohio, or War Road, Minnesota, uh, where newspapers closed, or Centerville, Iowa, uh, home of Simon Estes. Right, right. Oh, see, look at the, the wealth of information that just pours out of you. You should be sitting in a, you should be at the state capitol sitting in an exhibit and we just ask you questions and it comes out, right? Yeah, be the motorized heads talking. You yeah. and I could be there. We'll be like uh, animatronics at Disney World and just That's what you crank call us up them. and yeah. we're there. <laughs> Tell me too about being the subject of a documentary. What is that like? Is that difficult? Well, uh, it was kind of overwhelming when I saw it on the big screen uh, for the first time out in Vermont, this was in uh, this past summer, uh, late summer. And I'd seen it on a, a computer screen, uh, but that's one thing to see it on the silver screen is, uh, is a whole nother experience with the sound system and everything. And you're a movie buff, uh, you can appreciate that. And my first job, by the way, was as a projectionist at a movie theater. The Vista well, Theater. And I was just overwhelmed by the film and I was supposed to do a Q&A afterwards and they had to come pull me out of the bathroom where I was blubbering, you know. <laughs> and they got me on stage and I got my nose fully blown and, uh, and carried on. But yeah, it was overwhelming. And, you know, and, and from a journalistic point of view, it's kind of, it's, it's healthy and good to be on the other side of the microphone occasionally. I think we don't realize sometimes, you know, when we're writing a story, we will choose things that we're going to use in the story. Right. And it's like editing a film. There are right. scenes that may, you know, they always say, oh, it's on the cutting room floor, but maybe that was the stuff that I thought was true to me. And uh, did you feel yeah. that you were adequately represented? Did you feel like it was an honest portrayal of you? Or did you say, oh, I wish I hadn't smoked so much. Or I wish I hadn't sworn in that one place. <laughs> Well, that's the deal. You know, the first time I saw it on a computer screen, I was analyzing what's what's stupid that things did I say or vulgar things did I say. But, over, you know, then when you when you can watch it more from a viewer's point of view, I think it was a tremendously accurate and comprehensive picture of the community through the lens of the newspaper. And it's an, in my view, uh, a work of journalism itself, the, the documentary is. And that's a large credit uh, to Jerry Reishis, the, the cinematographer. He worked with Anthony Bourdain for 15 years uh, on the CNN show and uh, brought a real news perspective, I think, to the way he uh, shot the film. And Beth Levison, uh, co-director and producer, you know, also is a tremendous editor and so so i think they really did do it justice how, but how do you trust somebody when they ask you to do this how do you because that's something that we do every day with reporting yeah we are expecting people to trust us that we're not going to mangle their words that we're not going to you know make it seem like they're saying something they're not and that's salesmanship to a degree and so jerry Reishis uh, was the one who first approached us and he was reared on a hog farm near Buffalo Center, Iowa, up near Mason City. So he knew the lingo, and I just trusted him immediately. And that, that's his salesmanship. He comes across as an Iowa farm boy who uh, has no learning curve. And I also was aware of his reputation working for Anthony Bourdain, with Anthony Bourdain and uh, how they approach humble people in a humble way. And how you swear and smoke just like Anthony Bourdain, right? Isn't that how that goes? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. A lot of this is all based on the fact that you won the Pulitzer Prize for um, editorial writing in 2017. Was that it? Yes. What if that had never happened? Where would the Storm Lake Times be at this point? Or would where would you be? I mean, that's it's a nice boost. Yeah. It's a great thing to have. Yeah. But what if it didn't? Well, yeah, uh, if we hadn't won the Pulitzer, Jerry Reishis would have never seen this story in the New York Times. He lives in Brooklyn now, and he would have never seen this story in the New York Times saying that a tiny paper in Northwest Iowa won a Pulitzer Prize. That's what got him to give me a call. And uh, 
then a book doesn't happen. I wrote a book called Creatively Storm Lake. Storm Lake, right. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't happen. And the, the documentary doesn't happen. And most likely uh, this fundraising doesn't happen. Nor would we be given the opportunity to discuss these things. Bruce Miller and I probably wouldn't be talking today to discuss these things at a national and local level, to talk about the importance of factual reporting to an informed electorate. So again, there is a God. <laughs> I think that's what we conclude, right? Uh, yeah, that, that, that's, where, that's, that's the only deduction you can make. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And having seen it, and I really I grew up in newspapers. It's my life. That's all right. I know. And I could smell the ink in this movie. I could feel what that tension was. I love when you're talking in there about how it's $100 if we're late. That's every night. Every night we talk about those kinds of things and people don't realize it. If they don't have it on their doorstep in my town, they're upset. And they think that they don't know how the, the, the sausage is made in the course right. of all. Or they idea. don't understand why the journal is running fewer pages than it used to. Right. They don't know. And I think this is a great way of telling that story and right. understanding what it is that's what challenges we face. All during the pandemic, we felt that we were that that link for people who were stuck in their homes. They at least yeah. had a paper. They could look at that and they would feel like they were somehow connected to a community that they weren't. And I think they saw the Sioux City Journal battling to get information on COVID infections at area meatpacking plants and from public health authorities who were not giving up that information, including the governor. The Sioux City Journal had people in Des Moines, South Sioux City, and Omaha uh, reporting on all this. And I think that's why people are recognizing it and coming back and realizing that you got to pay a price to be informed. When you hear people talk about fake news, what do you say to them? Well, it, that it's been going on for a long time. It's called propaganda. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've been battling propaganda for a long time. It's just that now it's become uh, routine. Now, Joni Ernst just issued, actually issued a press release through her office saying that Anthony Fauci had something to do with releasing this virus from the Wuhan lab. Come on, come on. <laughs> it's just torturous. Uh, you know, when a U.S. senator is issuing a press release as sort of like a statement of fact, here news media report this distortion. In a world with no editors, that thing will get through. People don't want to know that this isn't necessarily the truth. This is one person's opinion that's masquerading as the truth. Right. Or one person's fantasy masquerading as the truth. Right. And yet people will believe it. That's what's so hard to, to get. Because it around. comes with the congressional seal on it or the presidential seal. And, and that's an important thing to discuss, I think, is how we've been under malicious attack for the past five years at minimum from a, a president who called us an enemy of the people. And, you know, that's like North Korean talk. And uh, it's important to acknowledge it and realize what we're up against. Are that's you, fascism. Right. Are you invigorated to get into the fight, to be part of that, to push back against these people? Or do you get tired at some point and you say, you know, I, somebody else has to take the charge. I can't do this anymore. Well, I uh, I do feel invigorated because, uh, you know, democracy is at stake. But, you know, Art, as, as well as I do, we go, I don't have that many years left. I yeah. can just kind of just zone out and let it go to somebody else. Let them take care of the problem because I probably then we would have never gotten into the newspaper business in the first place when Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein reported Watergate. That's what got you and me into this. Yes. Business. Yes. And uh, so we would have never gotten into the business if we said, oh, well, losing democracy. Gee, it was a good run. Uh, glad we got to see it. No, that's uh, that's not what we're about. Right. We're still fighting the good fight, as Cal Olson used to say here at the, <laughs> at the Journal. 
Right. And, Wasn't you know, Cal Olson part of a Pulitzer Prize winning? Yes, uh, he was in North Dakota. Yeah. Yeah. He also would like to say things like, this would be a great town to start a newspaper in. Well, you're <laughs> at the newspaper. Here we are, right? So, you know, it's, we are always hampered by something. If it's, right. we don't have enough advertising, if we don't have enough people, but we still keep fighting that fight. We still try to make sure that the people are getting the best that we can produce under the circumstances. Yeah. And I, I think if people realize that, and I think the movie shows how honest you people are in terms of just doing the legwork. When we see the Iowa caucuses in there, that right. is a, a huge push for journalism because you see how your son, Tom, who I think is the rock star of the film, yeah. his yeah. way around the caucuses and talking to different people. And then how you have a discussion in the newsroom about what are we gonna do? What, is, what do we see here? What is going on? It isn't just, I am spitting out some crap because I have to get something done. There is a discussion, there is a concern, and people represent different aspects of all of that. Right, and that, uh, I think it recognizes that, you know, news is something that you follow uh, as it goes along, and then there's a result, and you, you have to be patient with the news. And increasingly today, we're impatient with the news. And uh, it's important to get an accurate uh, vote count from the Iowa caucuses, whether it takes one day or five days, but they got an accurate count. And uh, we know that, you know, Bernie and Pete tied, okay, just like Bernie and Hillary tied. All right, uh, fair enough. Do you think the Iowa caucuses are dead? Well, it certainly looks like the Republicans want to preserve them, but the Democrats don't. And so I'm not sure how that's going to play out by 2024. And also, it's just uh, very curious that uh, with Joe Biden at his advanced age, you just don't really know, okay, what is going to happen in the next two years? There's a lot of big questions out there. You know, and they've given us uh, a window onto a world we probably wouldn't get. I mean, we've been very blessed in Iowa to have people who are running for the highest office in the land to come and ask us, you know, what, what are you guys thinking out there? What do you want? It is so bizarre. I remember when I first, this, the first uh, presidential campaign I saw was in 80. And yes. you saw these people coming and they were like wearing orange makeup. And you thought, what is this? And you realized that they weren't necessarily spouting what they believed. They were spouting what they were told that they believed so that they could get elected. And we saw a different side to candidates than I'm sure people in other states uh, saw. Yes, yes. So we're still out there separating that wheat from the chaff. And I think that's what this, this movie recognizes and that, you know, it's important to have a Bruce Miller there who is saying, no, the sky is not green and the moon is not made of green cheese. The emperor has no clothes. <laughs> yeah, right? that too. That too. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how in a room <clears throat> without any authority, we have to be a parent. We have to be the one that says, no, this isn't right. Yeah. And then we get attacked for that by being elitist and censors. And, uh, but somebody has to restore order in the civic discussion. And I don't know if we have the mojo to do that uh, against these social media behemoths. Um, yeah. Well, especially when people fall so quickly for what they read on a Facebook. Right. But I also have hope that the, that the category killers like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and to a lesser extent, the Wall Street Journal, will be able to, you know, look what David Fahrenholt from the Washington Post did in holding Trump accountable uh, to, the, to the nation on his reporting from about Mar-a-Lago and all that. And so I think that they're doing a great service to the country leading the way to, to back to a, a, a sane discussion of the facts. And I think we all communities benefit from that as, as they're leading, uh, leading the way, I think. We hope. Maybe you disagree, but. No, no, we hope. It's like, if you look at a Facebook post from a friend and you say, well, they don't look like that. 
you know, they've, right. they've put a filter on that picture. I know better. I know <laughs> that this isn't the truth. That's the kind of stuff you're getting in terms of news from a site like Facebook. They're putting a filter yeah. on it that they want. Right. And, and we take great care to remove those filters. Right. We and we were always taught we couldn't just go with one source on a story. We had to ask other people to make sure we're getting balance, objectivity, we're looking for all that. They don't have to do that on a Facebook. I've had discussions in news meetings about whether a person's mugshot uh, is portraying the story accurately. And, you know, where you've had 15 minute discussions about this mugshot versus that mugshot. That sort of discernment does go into producing a news product every day. The one I hate that comes all the time is, would you please take down this story about my arrest back in 2010? No, because that's the public record. I am not here to whitewash what might have happened, you know, 11 years ago. I'm not here to try and clean up things for you. You shouldn't have done it in the first place or at least figured out how you were going to get that off your record. But that's what they think we can do because that's what they think this is. It's very, it's very transient and we can change whatever. Or we can change the presidential election record as well. Yeah. I have always said our online paper is just a reflection of our print product. You'll right. be able to find that somewhere and you can look it up. But if you want mom and dad to know that you weren't married or you weren't born, and we erase all that kind of stuff, how are they ever gonna know your history? They're not. Right. All right, it's so fun to talk to you. And Likewise, Bruce. I, I really am thrilled that somebody from Iowa is a big, big star now, because if we lost <laughs> Donna Reed. Tom Arnold? We lost Donna Reed, we lost John Wayne. Tom Arnold, uh, good luck. Let's hope he's hanging in there He's with still us. bigger than me. Tom oh, Arnold no, is no, still no. bigger than me. Art, you're the man. So I appreciate that. <laughs> and I hope that this will really shake people up when it does air nationally, because I think they need to see it. I hear great things on the uh, award circuit that Storm Lake is considered on a short list of a number of, of awards for documentaries. And I think it's a great sign that you are being yourself. Well, thank you, Bruce. And I've never been to LA, so let's hope. Oh, it's... The Oscar time. I will so be there with you. If you get nominated, I'm trailing we'll along. We'll walk on the red carpet together, Bruce. I will be there with you and I'll be pointing everything <laughs> out and then I'll, I'll be getting selfies of myself because you know that's how I roll, right? <laughs> okay. All right, thank Very you so good. much. Thank Have you, Bruce. a great Bruce. rest of the day. Same to you. So that is the end of the episode. Uh, make sure that you're subscribed so you won't miss out on next week's show when I am certain that we'll have some thoughts on Ghostbusters Afterlife and the Williams sisters biopic, King Richard, which debuts in theaters and on HBO Max and is already racking up loads of Oscar buzz for best picture and best actor for Will Smith. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream the movies that we talked about, find information about Storm Lake, discover older episodes and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared and myself as well if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce and Jared and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope you enjoyed the show and are taking care of yourselves out there. As always, thank you so much for listening.